Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasting from the top of the rocks. This is News on the Rocks with Patty Steele. So I think we're all a little bit freaked out in the aftermath of the election. I certainly am no exception to that. And um, what I wanted to do is turn to uh, my friend and the guy that I've said a million times I think belongs in the White House is former Secretary of Homeland Security uh, from the Obama administration, Jay Johnson. Hey, Jay. I got it. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm delighted. It's a Saturday morning that we're uh, recording this. And um, funny enough, you get to see me in clothes. Not that you haven't seen me without clothes, but (laughs) at this point on Saturdays, you know, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and get dressed every day for work. And normally I spend the whole morning in my nightgown and here I am with actual clothes on. So let's let's. If I could, let's just stop for a moment here. Uh I do listen to you every weekday morning as I get up and start my day. And I have to say, I so look forward to hearing that marvelous, elegant voice (laughs) uh, with perfect English diction. Tell me the news that I really need to know without political hysteria, without bias. You tell me the things as someone who lives in the New York area that I really need to know. You tell me, you know, what Mayor de Blasio is doing to open or close schools. You tell me whether or not the L, L, the L line subway is closed. You tell me that there's a lane closure approaching the Lincoln Tunnel. It's gonna be shut down for the next five years. You tell me all the things I need to know yeah. uh, to get on with my day. You do it without bias. You do it without prejudice. You call it you, you you call it balls and strikes, Patty, and I really do appreciate your your weekday morning broadcast. Thank you. I, I don't edit that part out, okay? I'm sorry. Don't edit that part out. <laughs> I won't edit that out. I I might just feature that and end it there. <laughs> no, I. Um, it's funny you should say that because I've been reading a lot lately, and it, and I was going to ask you your opinion on this. I've been reading a lot of people lately are saying that. You know, there's this whole idea that if you're a journalist, you're supposed to present the facts and then allow people to use what you're telling them to make a decision for themselves about um, which direction they want to go or which direction they think we should be leaning in. And there are an awful lot of people in our business who are saying that shouldn't be the way journalism is anymore. We should have an attitude. We should tell people how to think because an awful lot of people don't know how to think. What do you think of that? I believe that's the role of 
newscast. I don't believe that's the role of journalism. Right. You and I grew up, mm-hmm. we had five or six basic sources of news and information. The local newspaper, the New York Times, radio, mm-hmm. and Walter Cronkite. Right. <laughs> I, I, if something happened in the course of the day, I'm 63 years old. If something happened in the course of the day in the 1970s, for example, I didn't believe it happened until I heard Walter Cronkite tell me it happened yeah. on CBS Evening News. Yeah. And we all were getting the same source of information, same sources of information that had journalistic standards. And we could form our own opinions based upon what we knew to be fact. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we live in a very different environment, which has led to the political polarization that we face today. Yeah, I agree. I think that it actually, um, way short of telling people how to think, it's incredibly divisive. Because what happens is if you agree with somebody, you're all in. But if you don't, you're so angry that you can go the other way. And it's really, it's very, uh, it's disturbing to me. You know, before we get too deeply into that whole area and politics and everything, um, I really want to say that this chat with you is about something to me a lot deeper and a lot more important and it speaks not just to the my business but also your business which is government service and I think um, for me back in 2016 I um, went to my daughter's high school graduation and there was this guy Jay Johnson who was speaking and and I knew who you were but I didn't know anything about you and I was like okay we you know we have a government guy he's gonna chat with us and tell the kids you're great and you your neighbor Patty in Montclair New Jersey yeah (laughs) exactly so you launched into this story that um just blew me away I mean I sat there and I felt like, and I've told you this, it was like an aha moment for me. It was the story of you growing up. And as I listened to it and I saw the evolution of Jay Johnson from this, you know, a little bit directionless kid, but with an incredible family, lucky you, into who you are today, I went, oh my God. This is the guy that belongs in the White House. This is the kind of character development that we don't seem to see very often. The kind of person that you you want running things because you don't have to agree with. I don't your your politics, my politics may not agree with one another. They don't need to. If I trust you, if I believe in the kind of person you are and your patriotism and your dedication to the United States and to all of us, not just half of us, but all of us, then I'm comfortable to put somebody like you in charge. And not that I sit back and don't pay attention, but I feel safe. I feel like I, it's like, it's like sending your kid to school and getting to know the teacher or, or whatever it is, you understand that this is a person I can trust and trust is paramount. It's actually more important than agreeing with the person. If you trust that they are going to be true to their own ideology and true to what they believe is right for the majority of people, then that's who you want there. So I really want you to tell that story a little bit about what happened to you in school and where your, how your parents um, and, and yourself, how you redirected your life. Well, you're too kind, first of all. I was born in New York City. My father 
was an architect. He's now retired. I'm blessed that both my parents are still living, and I'm 63 years old. You're lucky. When I was five or six. We moved upstate to the Hudson Valley to a little town called Wappingers Falls, New York. Mm-hmm. We were one of the first black families to move into the neighborhood. My father wanted to take his architecture practice upstate, and he got a job lecturing at Vassar College all throughout junior high school and high school. I was a terrible student. <laughs> I, my fixation was baseball. I was convinced that I was going to be a left fielder for the New York Mets. Therefore, I did not need to study math or history because I was going to be a left fielder for the New York Mets. And I was a power hitter, didn't have such a great arm, uh, good speed, could field. I was going to be a left fielder for the New York Mets. So why did I need to worry about getting a B in math? And I was a C and D student. The worst, most stressful time of the year during the school year at home was when the report card showed up in the mailbox. And it was the only time in my 63 years that I ever heard my mother utter a four letter word was when she opened my report card. (laughs) And in there, (laughs) everyone thought that I was destined for a life of mediocrity. I'm sure, except for my parents, my parents, knew I had it within me to do better. My father had a quiet confidence. He never stressed out. My mother stressed out all the time. And she would sit there and make me stare at the book to do my homework when I came home. If I didn't bring home my books to study, she would threaten to come to school and wait for me after the last period and escort me to my locker and drive me home in, you know, in grave embarrassment in front of all my classmates. And she actually did it once because I just refused to bring home my books to study. And then finally, I said to her one day in an act of defiance, Mom, you can, you can make me sit here. You can make me stare at this book. You can make me turn the pages of this book, but you can't make me read this book. And that was the back and forth we had. I was a C and D student. I never successfully got beyond 10th grade math. I flunked the New York State Regents exam for math in 12th grade. And somehow I got into college and I went to a wonderful place for college, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, which is an all black, all male school. The only one in the country, it still is. The most famous alumnus of Morehouse College is Martin Luther King Jr. I went to school with his son, Marty, who's my lifelong friend of over 40 years now. And Morehouse inspired me. Mm-hmm. When I left high school, my guidance counselor told my parents, don't think about four-year college for your son. And by sophomore year, I put down the baseball bat and the glove because I realized I really didn't have it to be a professional athlete. So no, there was nothing left to do but study. Well, I don't know. Maybe the Mets. <laughs> And uh, well, yeah, um, <laughs> the way the Mets perform, maybe I could have made the team, but I became a straight A student. And so the message that I tell students in high school graduations and college commencements is you are smarter than you think you are stronger than you know, just reach down a little harder, dig a little deeper to find within you something you didn't know existed. And so like the graduation address I gave at Montclair High in 2016, what I almost always say is 
to the graduates. I'm not talking to the honors students. I'm not talking to the A students. I want to talk to the bottom half of this class. If there's a top half of this class, by definition, there must be a bottom half of this class. And the parents always get nervous because they think that I'm going to scold them. And I say, I'm talking to the bottom half of this class because I was one of you. You have more than you know by way of potential. You are stronger than you know. You're smarter than you realize. And that's the message I try to convey. And so many people who I went to high school with, even some of my teachers who are still around, remember me as a very lackadaisical, mediocre student and are shocked that I got to where I am. Why? You know, it's like a parable, this story to me, because, and it's something I think that people need to hear and they need to like take inside because I realize this happened to you as a very young person, but even now a lot of us, you know, um, maybe maybe we're without work, we're feeling kind of directionless. This is a story of not giving up and it doesn't matter where you are in life or how old you are. Or, you know, maybe it's about your kids and you're worried about your kids. Or I think it's just such an essential story. Did you have a moment, you say you put down the baseball bat in, in your sophomore year. Was there one area that you were studying or one moment that, that, or, or professor that believed in you where you just said, well, I think I can do this and that's where the... Yes, there was a moment, fall semester, my sophomore year fall 1976, when I realized that I'm here to study and I should reach down and start working harder academically. And it was also the same summer that I volunteered for Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign, just on a whim, stepped off the bus in Atlanta and went, walked into his headquarters and volunteered. And of course, he went all the way and won, won the presidency that year. So there were a lot of things happening at once but there was a moment I remember sitting at my desk in my in my dorm room and realizing that this is why I'm here I mean it's time to it's time to hunker down I was very definitely a late bloomer yeah but um, I went from a 1.8 GPA my freshman year at Morehouse to a 3.0 B average my sophomore year and then the last two years at Morehouse I was a straight A student uh, it, I, it, it helped that my dad promised me a car. <laughs> that exist. So I got the car in addition to getting into law school. What did your mom have to say? I'm interested in that. <laughs> well, um, my mom was, of course, very proud. And I have to say, I'm, I'm so happy that I, I'm 63 years old. I, I've come as far as I have, and they're still with me to observe it all. They were with me when we went to the White House for my swearing in oh. as Secretary of Homeland Security in December of 2013. Mm-hmm. And they've been with me through a lot. I, I, I will tell you that my mother is in dementia oh. and um, she began, she began the she began to show signs probably almost 20 years ago. She's in her late eighties now. Mm-hmm. And I wanted her at the white house, yeah. the yeah. West wing to see me sworn in as secretary of Homeland security, though I wasn't sure whether she would understand what was happening. Right. 
and we walked into the Oval Office. And, and my mother in 2007, 2008, she was, she was an avid Obama supporter. And when we walked into the Oval Office, this is now 2013, early 2014, and she looked at the president and she said, hi, I'm Norma, who are you? <laughs> and right on cue, he said, I'm Barack, welcome to my home. Oh. So a special moment. Yeah, do you have that on uh, video so you can relive it? <laughs> no, we have a picture of the we have a picture of the moment though. Uh, uh, what's that, like? that moment was the Oval Office meeting after I was sworn in was supposed to be private with my immediate family. Yeah, I had about thirty family members and friends with me for this event. Oh, wonderful! And I got quietly summoned to the Oval Office. The entire group followed me in to the Oval <laughs> Office. All of them, family, friends, everybody. And we, they wanted to take a group picture, but Pete Souza, the White House photographer, couldn't fit us all into one photograph because the furniture was getting in the way. So one of my college friends said, we'll just move the furniture out of the way. <laughs> so just move the furniture in the Oval Office so that we could all get a group photo. I went, oh my God, I'm sorry, Mr. President. Uh, that, that's all part of the character you know, issue because when you have that kind of support and love of family and friends, it, it, it just is such an incredibly, um, it builds who you are inside because you, you want to be everything you can possibly be for those people. It's, it really... Um, character is not necessarily innate. Character sometimes comes after making mistakes. Oh, 100%. After suffering disappointments, after making mistakes in how we treat others and feeling bad for having done so. So very often character is an acquired trait. It's an acquired way of, of, of living. It's an acquired way of life. You know, I gave a speech. I, <clears throat> I've been wanting to give a speech for some time about the importance of character in political leadership. Oh man, that's amazing. Cause that's exactly what I've been wanting to talk about here. So that's great. Yes. Well, I, 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 I read your mind, Patty, from <laughs> several blocks away. And I had an opportunity to give such an address at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Liberty is founded yeah. by Jerry Faldwell, and they invited me to come give the convocation address to the student body on nine, this past 9-11. And so I said, that's a perfect place for me to talk about the importance of character and morality in, in leadership. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to read you just a small excerpt. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. The traits of a good leader exist across many fields whether you are a pastor, a plant manager, a sales team leader, a police or fire chief, a university president, a commander of soldiers in combat, a mayor, a governor, or a president. It's a sad state of affairs today that the public has come to expect little of our political leaders when it comes to character and morality. We no longer expect our political leaders to tell us the truth. We no longer expect our political leaders to play by the rules. Our expectations of our political leaders have sunk so low, we now accept from them personal behavior that would be unacceptable for our children, our students, our employees, or cadets, soldiers, sailors, airmen, or Marines, 
under our military command. Too often politicians pay no price for a lie or even a crime. Instead, we conveniently overlook the bad behavior by saying, but I like his policies or the economy is doing great. This decoupling of a leader's personal character from the general environment in which he or she governs works only to a point. Trivial times may tolerate trivial leaders, but ask any military commander who has led people into battle and they will tell you that in times of great stress, the poor character of a leader will have a corrosive effect on an entire unit. Character, integrity, and morality do matter. So that's what I said. Uh, boy, that, that is everything in a nutshell that I thought about the first time I heard you speak, and that's exactly, that's exactly it. Here's my question. Why government service not attract more people like you, more people that have that mindset. I, I just, it's, it's very troubling to me. And I asked you this, uh, you and I got together this summer and we were talking about this kind of thing. And you said, you know, it's become, politics has become a space in which you have to want to win more than you want to be the president, you have to want to win it. More than you want to um, take care of the nation, you have to be able to put everything, including family, aside, which I think is is generally a, a lot of what happens, although I was very heartened. Um, president Obama has a new book out, and he was talking about the discussion of um, running for president with Michelle and how that went back and forth, and it was very clear to me. And, and one of the things that I really thought was wonderful about an interview that he did um, for CBS, uh, I think it was for 60 Minutes, they were talking about... Um, it wasn't until after, I think the question was, or the comment was, it's probably not until you're out of the White House that you realize how essential this person is in your life. And he said, no, uh, to the contrary, I knew all along that I couldn't even be doing this without her. And I think it's a, it's a really, um, it scares me, though, that we don't have more people that have that strength of character. What do you think it is? Do you think it is what we talked about, that it's so difficult to win and it costs so much money and you have to, f it's, it's such a, there's so many attacks on who you are that it's just not attractive anymore? A couple of things. One, I do believe that politics should be a means and not an ends. Politics is the instrument or should be the instrument for getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. In democracy, where you have an executive branch, a legislative branch, where you have Democrats and Republicans, politics is an instrument for forging compromise. There's that dirty word, compromise. Mm -hmm. But compromise is the way you get stuff done in Washington. But politics has become the ends and not the means. Winning seems to matter more than serving. Winning and staying in power seems now to matter more than what you do with that power and authority once you have it to serve people. I had a plaque over my door when I was at the Pentagon as general counsel of the Department of Defense. And the plaque said, we get stuff done. Uh, it actually said, Another word began with S, but I'm not going to use it on the podcast. But that was my approach to, to leading, to, to governing. 
we talk about the lack of character in leadership. I did have the privilege when I was at the Pentagon for a number of years working alongside some military leaders who were outstanding people of, of character, uh, outstanding leaders in the battlefield who were humble, who were straightforward, who inspired others to follow them. I know someone who was a retired army colonel who led 800 soldiers into battle in Afghanistan. And what he teaches now in leadership is to be the best version of yourself as a leader and to inspire your subordinates to be the best version of, of themselves. And so I, I had the I had the honor of serving alongside as a civilian political appointee, serving alongside many um, really terrific uh, people who wear the uniform of this nation. And it was from them that I learned a lot about leadership traits myself. And of course, you're absolutely right. Your, your family is your support mechanism. I've been married now for 26 years. As you know, I married the girl next door from Wappingers Falls, New York. We've been married 26 years. And she has, she didn't anticipate this when we got married, but she has been with me through three separate stints in public office in Washington. And it's a sacrifice for for the family as much as it is for the individual who is in the job, in the office. Uh, the financial sacrifice, um, these jobs can be all-consuming, very stressful. You don't get to take as many vacations as you'd like. And so... You'll live where you want to live. <laughs> it's a sacrifice for the family. So very often when you go to a retirement ceremony in the Pentagon, they always thank the spouse for their service too. And that is very much, that is very deliberate. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever have a moment where you look at each other and just say, we can't do this again? Because I know, I mean, yeah, I saw you on Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, and she was asking if you would consider a cabinet position because, you know, you, you clearly are somebody that, boy, we really need there. But I, you, and you said an interesting thing, and you had said this to me as well, that um, it's a real conundrum for you because you have a really comfortable, lovely private life. You have a wonderful home. You have a terrific job. But at the same time, you're a patriot. When and how do you make the choice? Obviously, it's important to be a patriot and give to the country. But when do you say, you know, I... I got to live my life for me and for my family as well. How do you make that choice? Oh, that's a good question. And it's, it's circumstantial. You're right. I'm very comfortable uh, living here in Montclair, New Jersey, several blocks away from Patty Steele. <laughs> I've got a great law practice in Manhattan and I do get to serve the public once in a while, simply through media interviews, lending my voice to the public debate right. on uh, a number of different networks. And I don't just live in one cable network world. I work both sides of the street because I believe strongly in talking to all audiences. Yeah. Um, but still, there's something within me that is uh, a desire to serve the public I came of political age in 1968 when 1968 was a very momentous year. Sure. I actually believe 2020 is going to be 
as momentous as 1968, if not more so, because of all the stuff that's happened to us in 2020. But that was when I came of age. And ever since then, I've had a desire to be part of the larger picture and to do what I can to make our, our nation, our country, our, our community uh, great. And I think there's an innate desire in a lot of us to want to serve and help other people. And so I guess that's just how I'm made up. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a question for you. At right. the- There's a point where you say enough on uh, my time. I've given at the office. Right. Um, and, you know, there's certain jobs that if President-elect Biden asked me to do, I would seriously consider. Yeah. Even though I've been in public office now four separate times already. So as somebody in in government service or politics, you know, we are in such a state of horrifying division in this country. And, and yep. you know, one side won, one side didn't win, but both sides have to understand that there is a vast minority that didn't win but still needs to be represented. How do you as a person in that world, reach across the aisle so that people feel included, but without sacrificing your own ideology? Well, when I was in Washington, I worked hard to develop a good working relationship with Republicans and Democrats. When I was Secretary of Homeland Security, all three years, there was a Republican House. And two of the last three years, there was a Republican Senate. So I had to work with the Republican Congress. My staff, my legislative affairs staff, knows that when I'd go to Capitol Hill, I'd do drive-bys. They hated it because they couldn't anticipate where I was going to go. But I was, as I walked the, the halls of the House or Senate office buildings, I'd just walk in to a member's office, Republican or Democrat. Oh, is so-and-so here? Would you let him know the Secretary of Homeland Security is, is uh, just drop by to say hello? And... The member, of course, would be flattered if they had a constituent with them. They get to impress the constituent because the Secretary of Homeland Security has dropped by to say hello. And through that comes a personal connection so that when you do disagree, mm-hmm. at least there's an underlying level of respect. It is much harder to demonize somebody on the other end of the political spectrum if you know them to be a person of good character and integrity. And so from an underlying level of respect that people across the aisle can have for each other, there is a basis for getting stuff done once in a while. And I, when I meet somebody, always look for the best in in people. I don't assume the worst when I meet somebody who is a a different political party or a different ideology. I always look for the best in people and I always look for common ground. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Uh, How many kids do you have? What are their ages? I always look for common ground. And when you find common ground with somebody, that can be the basis for a working relationship of mutual respect and, you know, a constructive environment before you start talking about the things that divide you, find the things that unite you first. Yeah, that's the connection. Yes. 
Well, I I wish that we had more people like that. I I do hear an awful lot of noise from the far reaches of both parties, which concerns me, that is basically you either do it all our way or you're out, you know, and and I and that's disturbing. I mean, there's a there are times when I wonder are we kind of done with a two-party system? Because actually both parties seem to have this great divide in them from the far reaches of their party to the more moderate um, ends of the party that does want to work with the other side. I don't know. I mean, I look back at the Civil War and I think about how um, we, we developed a new political party back then, which is, has evolved over the years and changed, but... I mean, are we in that space or, or can we find a way to draw everybody in? And, and uh, I mean, because obviously you need, the, you need words from, you need people who are on the far reaches to be able to contribute because it makes you think outside the box. But when it takes over the party, it's scary. The definition of a, of a majority party is a party that is a big tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has a broad range of views and ideologies, and that makes that makes a party stronger. It doesn't make it weaker mm-hmm. to have within it, you know, a conservative element, a progressive element, or a moderate element. That's not something to be to be scorned or or put down. You can learn from even within one political party. You can learn from each other, and there is strength in in numbers. There is strength in that broad a spectrum of of views. It's when if you find that everyone is agreeing with you, if there's unity in thinking, it's probably because your base is shrinking, huh. uh, and your your party's getting smaller because you have people who just occupy one part of the political spectrum. And that's that's the definition of a minority party. So we have to learn to respect each other's views. When I was when I was in office, I had an advisory committee that uh, would um, advise me on homeland security matters, and I made sure it included both Republicans and Democrats. When I was general counsel of the Department of Defense, I'd have informal gatherings of lawyers in the national security space. And I've just convened them to say, tell me how I'm doing. And uh, I made sure that it included a broad spectrum of people ranging from these meetings would get so big, you could sell popcorn, you could sell tickets (laughs) to these meetings because there were very lively discussions. And it included everybody from the head of the ACLU to Lindsey Graham. Yeah. And a lot of people in between. And there were lively discussions and people were, people appreciated being included, uh, having their views uh, solicited. And I always find that there is strength in that. Yeah. I always find that that's a healthy way to make decisions. Well, it goes back to that uh, connection, that communication, because you are willing to listen. And um, wow, you're amazing. How often do you turn on TV now? whether it's news, cable news, or anything else, where you have a real, live, legitimate, but respectful debate between two people of different political views. Not much anymore. No, you really don't. It's, it's one of the- We're just violently agreeing with each other. 
<laughs> Once in a while, I go on, I go on TV shows, um, network news, uh, cable news shows, and everybody's got their hair on fire, and they want you to just join them as an interviewee so that you can light your own hair on fire and be equally as outraged. <laughs> the viewer doesn't learn anything from that experience. No. Uh, it's, come, come be outraged with me. Right. The viewer does not learn anything. The viewer is not any smarter from having watched that show. And I think that um, those of us with a public voice, those of us with a microphone uh, like you and I right now have a, have a civic responsibility to try to educate and inform people, uh, not just encourage them to think your way, but to educate and inform and encourage people to be scrutinizing in their own in their own in the way in which they develop their own points of view yeah i totally agree i i do think sadly that um part of the problem is especially in the advent of 24-hour news uh, channels and cycles that there is an overarching concern about entertaining as opposed to informing and so the the quest really is 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 to be interesting enough for people to want to hear what you have to say without it just being uh you know an accident scene which is what so much of those shows are about now because it's all it's all vicious opinion and as you said everybody's got their hair on fire and and we all sit there in front of the tv and we either go yeah yeah my hair's on fire with you or we say you know these guys are ass I'm changing the channel. I'm going to go watch the people that light my hair on fire in the way I want to. And it's, it's, it's all about being entertained and told what you want to hear as opposed to stopping and saying, well, how do we learn? What do we, what do we, what do we, can I gather from this? I mean, I love the fact you told me this a long time ago that you had friends and family who said, you know, why would you go on Fox news? And you said, because I, as you said earlier, I don't want to, just talk to people who agree with me. I feel like if I go somewhere else, not only can I explain where I'm coming from, but I can learn something from them. And I... Yeah, so that (laughs) happened a couple of weeks ago. It was right after the election. Uh, The election was on a Tuesday. I think it was a Thursday morning or Friday morning. I woke up at like 2 a.m. I turned on MSNBC and there's Steve Kornacki doing his math with the election returns and figuring it out. And I flipped to Fox. Mm-hmm. And Fox was all, I have to say, it was very dark. It mm-hmm. was very, a lot of conspiracy theories floating around about how the election was being stolen and so forth. And I said to myself, I have to go on. I have to go on Fox. So I actually called the people who usually call me <laughs> on. Uh-huh. And I was on with Neil Cavuto that afternoon. And I said, we are a bitterly divided nation. This is going to be a very contested election. And roughly half the nation is going to be very disappointed. But we have to accept and respect the result. And the price, that's the price you pay for democracy. And if you don't like the result, you have an opportunity in four years to make a different decision. Before I could even hit the leave meeting button, my phone was lighting up with very angry people. How dare you talk to them? <laughs> How dare you talk to us that way? Leaving angry voicemails, sending me emails. I got one text 
from, I won't name him, but he is one of the most revered retired military officers in the country who said, thank you for your wise and mature leadership. Just saw you on Fox. That all, that made all of the hate mail I got worth it. <laughs> yeah. None of that mattered because you got that. I can imagine. I mean, the, the, the more animated people reached out to me to express their view. How dare I go on their network to say such things like accept and respect the result of a democracy. But I suspect that the people I didn't hear from may have appreciated the message. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. I can tell you that as somebody who works on the radio, you are much more apt to get uh, mail from people who say, I can't believe you said that, than you are people. I mean, there's a response bias, right? There's a response yeah, bias. Because it just kind of right. foments with, with the If you agree with what you're hearing, you probably are not motivated enough to go look up that person's phone number or email and write that person an e- you know, a, a note or convey your views. The one good thing I have to say is I will be equally attacked at times, like during the run-up to the election, I would have people write in and say, well, it's very clear that you're a huge Trump supporter. And, blah, blah, blah. and then I would have... Uh, I don't know how anybody could, could draw that conclusion based upon your, your newscast, Patty. Well, you, not you, my you newscast. Down the middle. But maybe in the, but I would get the same amount of mail from people saying it's very clear that you're a Biden supporter and they would get really, because I always try to balance the conversation and the newscast. Yes, I really, really work hard to make sure that I'm not um, putting opinion into that. I think it's essential to tell both sides of the story. But when it comes to the chat on air, I'm always trying to fill in the blanks. If the discussion goes in a direction that seems to support one side, I'll say, but you know, you have to remember this and try yeah, right. add that. And that's where I, I get into it. I listen to your dialogue with Scott also. I mean, I, <laughs> we know where Scott's politics are, but you're like the foil. You're so you, you, there's no, I, I detect no political leaning whatsoever from right. your dialogue on radio. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, I wanted to include, there's a quote that I love. I have on my phone, I have um, a section that's called affirmations. And it, it got me through, you know, breast cancer six years ago, through, you know, um, issues which I've talked about publicly with my, my son's addiction, all kinds of things that um, I could turn to this and it really kind of, fortified me. And I think of you when I think of you as that little boy, you know, not wanting to study. And I think of you with a 1.8 in your freshman year or your senior year in high school, whatever that was. Um, But it's a quote from Maya Angelou, which has so, uh, I've turned to a number of times. And it's, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. And to me, that is, that's the ultimate sense of hope about moving forward. Don't right. be reduced by what happens. And, and there is that, that thought that we take whatever is, is dealt to us, whether it's to us personally or to our nation, we take that and we say, okay, what is the universe trying to teach me here? 
How, how can we move forward, learn from this, and share what we've learned with other people and move forward in a positive way? And, um, you know, once again, Jay Johnson, 2024, <laughs> or, <laughs> or 2028, if that's what you would rather. Um, that's the kind of person that I think is essential in Washington. You know, don't be reduced by what you see or what happens to you or to this country, look forward and say, how can we make it better? And uh, you're a living example of that to me. Well, thank you so much. You're too thank kind. You. No, you're a delight to talk to, and I, I appreciate your time this morning. So I'll go put my nighty back on and sit on the couch. <laughs> All right, Patty. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, such a delight. Thank you. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.